This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Well, open your Bibles this morning to the book of Judges. Last week, we began a new series that we're going to be in for a couple of months on the book of Judges. We're going to walk through Judges together. And the name of the series is Broken People, Faithful God. That's really what we see in the book of Judges. We see broken people, people broken by their own sin, but then we see a faithful God in His mercy coming to them. It's really a picture of the gospel. Broken people, faithful God. We're walking through the book of Judges. And so last week, we sort of introduced this series, and we were in chapters 1 and 2, and just kind of got a flyover of what the series is going to be like. I'll do some reviewing this morning if you weren't able to be here. But today, we're going to be in the third chapter, which is about disobedience, discipline, and deliverance, which is sort of a pattern that we're going to see time and time again in the book of Judges. Disobedience, followed by discipline, followed by deliverance. So we're going to be in verses 1 through 30 this morning. I'm not going to read all 30 verses here at the beginning because we're going to read most of them as we walk through the text together. But let's just begin by going before the Lord in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to study this book, which um, points to our need for a Savior, our need for a King, Jesus, so clearly. And we pray that Christ would reign as King in every aspect of our lives and We pray that if anyone is here who doesn't yet know the real Deliverer, the real Savior, that by the power of your Spirit you would speak to hearts and open hearts to see Jesus this morning. We pray this in his name. Amen. So last week we sort of talked about the fact that, you know, if you're visiting Williamsburg or you're visiting a Civil War battlefield or something, that it's helpful before you begin your tour to go to the visitor center. So last week we sort of went to the Book of Judges Visitors Center um, because we're going to be walking through the Book of Judges here over the next several weeks. And so before we, you begin your walk on a tour, sometimes you want to go to the Visitor Center and kind of get the big picture. Um, and so we looked at sort of the, the big picture of Judges, the big picture of the book that we're going to be walking through. And here at the beginning, I want to review some of that for those of you who were not here, or if you were here, it'll just get it in that much deeper. What are we we looking at? What's the big picture? What's the book of Judges all about? What, What period of biblical history is this taking place in? We talked about the fact that Judges takes place during an in-between time in Israel's history. So... They were slaves in Egypt. God delivered them from slavery. And and then immediately after they were delivered, Moses was their leader. And later Joshua was their leaders, great godly leaders. Um, 
and then Israel is going to have, eventually, they're going to have kings to lead them, okay? So men like David are going to lead the nation. But Judges takes place in between those two periods. It takes place after the death of Joshua and before the beginning of the kings. So it's sort of the Wild West in Israel. Um, in fact, there are a couple of verses that we looked at that sort of show the whole thing, what's happening in this book. One of them is in 17.6. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And again, in chapter 21, in those days no, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so... It was a, a period where uh, just, you know, people are, they're, they're lacking leadership. Joshua's dead. There is no king at this point. And you've got sort of a situation where there's a lot of spiritual and moral chaos that's going on. And, you know, th- that statement can be said of our culture today, right? There are a lot of people doing just what is, what is right in their own eyes, right? And we need a king too. Um, and God has provided a king um, in, in Christ. But in the absence of a king, what God was going to do during this period in Israel's history is he was going to raise up a series of judges. Now, as we talked about last week, they're not judges like we think of judges. We think of judges as, as people in the judicial process in the courtroom. These judges are more like deliverers. In fact, they're often called that in the book. They're referred to as deliverers, saviors. They were men and women that God raised up during this time to sort of deliver Israel from the trouble that they kept getting themselves into. And there's a pattern that we're going to see in Judges again and again and again. And the pattern is, is this. It's human sin followed by human pain followed by God's mercy in raising up a deliverer. Human sin followed by the painful consequences of that sin followed by God's mercy in raising up a deliverer. And he's going to do this again and again and again. He raises up these judges, these these deliverers. Um, another way that you could put it is that the pattern is like this. Disobedience followed by discipline followed by a deliverer. Disobedience followed by God's discipline followed by God raising up a deliverer. And we're going to see that pattern repeat twice in chapter 3. So what do we see here in chapter 3? First of all, we're going to see Israel's disobedience. It says in verse 1, these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. Now, what's happening here is this. After God delivers the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, he brings them to the promised land. This is going to be a special land that God has given them to to serve, a place where they can serve him and worship him and be a beacon of light 
spiritual light to the rest of the world. Well, the land of Canaan, the promised land, is occupied by a lot of idolatrous peoples, and God commanded the Israelites to drive them out. Um, It was not for imperialistic purposes. There was nothing racial about it. It was because God knew that if the the Canaanites, the idolatrous um, pagan peoples, if they remained in the promised land, God knew that Israel was going to be sucked into their idolatry and all of their evil practices. So he, he commanded them to drive them out. He said, I don't want you to enslave them, you're not to plunder them, but you are to drive them out. So what happens? Well, first of all, they get to the brink of the promised land, and they, they're, they're, uh, they're afraid to, uh, to go in. So they send the spies in, of course, and, you know, and, and uh, Joshua and Caleb say, hey, we can do this because God's going to enable us to do it. But the other ten spies say, oh, no, we can't do this. You know, this, this land is filled with fortified cities and giants, and there's no way we can do it. So what happened? That They wandered in the wilderness you know, for 40 years uh, because of their lack of faith. But then, in the book of Joshua, which immediately precedes Judges, they do enter the promised land. And they win a whole series of victories, but the test is not over because some of these some of these pagan peoples are still remaining in the land. So the job basically is not done. And so it says here in verse 1 that these peoples were left in the land as a test to Israel. Well, they don't do so well <laughs> with the test. There's a, there's a story about um, a, a guy named A.T. Robertson who was the most famous Greek professor probably in, in the history of, uh, of Greek teachers in American seminaries. But he taught at Southern Seminary uh, for many, many years in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And he, in fact, his Greek grammar is still in print today, r- remarkably. Um, but great professor, but a tough professor. And so, you know, 100 years ago, kind of the, the method in a lot of college or seminary classes is that the students would stand up and they would give these long recitations. Uh, and so uh, there's a story that, uh, that one day this, this poor student gets up and it's obvious. He, the guy hasn't studied. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And he stands up to give his recitation in A.T. Robertson's class. And he's obviously unprepared. And so he's kind of stumbling through it. And A.T. Robertson just kind of stops him in the middle of his recitation. And he says, uh, brother, excuse me, uh, all I can do for you is pray for you and flunk you, okay? Um, you know, <laughs> Israel flunks the test here, okay? Royally, they do not pass this test. They fail. What, what happens here? The people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and their daughters took to themselves, uh, and their daughters they took to themselves for wives And their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods, idols. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. It says they forgot God. Did they have a memory problem? No, they had spiritual amnesia. Okay, they forgot 
how good God had been to them. They forgot that it was God who gave them life and it was God who delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. They forgot God's mercy and God's faithfulness to them. And they forgot the fact that if they departed from God, they were going to inevitably bring pain into their lives. And that's exactly what happens. They, they bring, they bring self-inflicted pain, really, into their lives. And so the second thing that we see here is, is, is discipline. All right, verse 8, Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishashem, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishashem eight years. Now, it says God was angry with them. Yes, he was angry. You know what? Anger doesn't always mean the absence of love. Sometimes, if there's no anger, there's no love. If your spouse is cheating on you, and you just don't, you don't care about their adultery, there's no, there's no anger, there's no caring, you don't love your spouse. If you're a parent, and your children are doing things that you know are going to bring harm on themselves, and you don't discipline them, guess what? You don't love them. God's discipline, his anger and his discipline for Israel was precisely because he did love them. God disciplines us in love. Hebrews 12, 6 says, For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and he punishes each one he accepts as his child. Why? Because he loves us. He loves us too much to allow us to go our own way and bring even more harm on ourselves. So God's discipline here for Israel is that he allows them to experience eight years of servitude under the king of Mesopotamia. Now, God's discipline is is bad good news, okay? It's bad news because it hurts. It's good news because it shows that God has not given up on them. You see, he could have just cut Israel loose. I'm done with you. I've been so good to you. You've turned your back on me. Boom. Done. I'm letting you go. But he doesn't do that. And so his discipline is actually good news in that it shows God has not given up on Israel. He loves his people. You know what? And when God disciplines us for our good, that's, that's good news. Okay, so we see God's, uh, the people's disobedience followed by God's discipline. Uh, third, followed by deliverance. Now we're going to meet the first judge. All right, his name is Othnel. Um, and he's the first of a series of judges that we're going to meet in this book. Verses 9 through 11 of chapter 3. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. This is going to happen again and again. All right, they're going to, they're going to experience self-inflicted pain because of their disobedience. Okay, and God's going to have to discipline them 
And then they're going to groan in their pain. They're going to cry out in their pain. And God, in his mercy and love, is going to hear their cry. And he's going to raise up a deliverer, a judge. And so the first one that he raises up is Othnel. Othnel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishthaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishthaim. So the, the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. Now, a couple of things here. We, don't, we aren't told a whole lot about this first judge. We do know that what he accomplishes, he doesn't accomplish in his own strength, right? He's able to, uh, to accomplish what he accomplishes. Why? Verse 10, because the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Right? Zechariah 4.6 says, It's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So Othniel could do nothing in his own strength, as we can't. He's able to do this only because the spirit of the Lord is upon him. The second thing that we see is that Israel gets this period of rest. This is a period of peace. A period of freedom. They, they've endured eight years of oppression under the king of Mesopotamia. But then God uses Othniel to, to lead them out of that. So they get rest and peace for 40 years. Freedom. But you know what? They can't handle freedom. They can't handle it. Because what's going to happen next? They're going to plunge back into evil. They cannot stand prosperity and freedom. They forget God. You know, this week, the index of persecution of Christians around the world was released. This is an annual thing where they, they sort of rank the worst countries in the world for persecution of Christians. And usually, and this year was no exception, North Korea tops the list. We should pray for the Christians in North Korea. But I want you to know the Christians in North Korea are praying for us. I heard an interview a while back with a person who works closely with the underground church in North Korea. And he said that the North, Christian, uh, North Korean Christians are constantly praying for American Christians. Because they understand that our our freedom and prosperity can, can often be a greater spiritual snare than the persecution that they're experiencing. Can you handle, can you handle it when things are going well? <laughs> or do you tend to get complacent and forget God? Israel... Every time they have this, these periods of rest, they get complacent and they forget the Lord, um, which is exactly what happens here. Because now what we're going to see um, in chapter 3 is that the pattern is going to repeat. First of all, 
disobedience. (laughs) Verse 12, and the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Their disobedience is followed by discipline. Again, verses 12 through 14, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab, 18 years. So their first round of discipline under the king of Mesopotamia is eight years. Now they're going to be disciplined under the king of Moab for 18 years, 18 painful years. This time, God's instrument of discipline for his people was going to be the king of Moab, and his name was Eglon. And the term Eglon means round or rotund, um, fat. And we're going to see that coming to play as we continue to go through uh, chapter 3. And what you need to know about Eglon is that he threw his weight around in all kinds of ways. He brutally oppressed Israel for 18 years. It's just this this painful... Uh, period of discipline that they are experiencing. So, once again, they're going to cry out to God. We're in pain. We're, we're groaning in pain. And once again, God in mercy is going to hear their cry, and he is going to raise up a deliverer. Okay? And we meet this second judge, the second deliverer, In verse 15, then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. So now we meet the second judge, Ehud. And the way that he emerges is really interesting, because... He's chosen to go and to present a tribute to Eglon. And this was a really humiliating practice. Because these oppressed people would have to, you know, get some, some of their crops or whatever. And they would have to go before their oppressor and present these goods to him as a tribute. It's almost like they were being forced to go before their oppressor and say, Oh, Eglon, thank you for oppressing us. We present this tribute to you. Well, Ehud has another kind of tribute (laughs) in mind. Okay? Um, Verse 16, And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. Now, this sword is more like what we would call a dagger, probably like 15 to 18 inches long. And remember, Ehud is left-handed, so he puts it on his right side. That was not typical. Most guys were right-handed, so they would keep their sword or their, uh, their weapon on their left side, and they would unsheathe it like this. Ehud's left-handed, so the dagger is on his right side, and it's kind of concealed next to his thigh. That's very important. 
because it means that he is, he's not noticed. They don't notice anything suspicious about him when he comes into the king's chamber. Verses 17 and following. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who would carry the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. Now, this is meant to show Eglon's stupidity. All right, he, was a, he had a, a large body and a small brain. Okay? Because what he, what's he doing? He's, he's sending all of his guards away. All of his attendants, all of his security detail that would typically be there, he sends them all out. Okay, so he's left without any, any of his guards. And what happens next? Verse 20, And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. Now, you notice the slight change in wording here? From verse 19 to verse 20, verse 19, Ehud says, I have a secret message for you. Verse 20, I have a divine message for you. King, I have a message to you from God. And here's the message. Verse 21, And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. I told you last week, Judges is earthy and violent, okay? And it does not disappoint. Why didn't they teach me this story in Sunday school when I was a boy? I would have loved it. would have fallen in love with the Bible as an eight or nine-year-old boy if they had told me this story, okay? Um, and don't let the kind of the gruesome details of the story dis- detract from the fact that the writer of Judges, and we don't know who he was, okay? Ultimately, it's God. But whoever wrote the book of Judges is a literary genius, okay? Even the roughness of the story is there for a reason. It's meant to convey these were rough times. This is the Wild West, okay, in Israel. It's a rugged time. It's a rough time in their history. Now, a lot of modern people would they read a story like this and just recoil at the the vile Ehud, he's, he's violent, you know, this is a political assassination that's taking place. Okay, what's the first key to understanding any part of the Bible? Is to try to put yourself in the position of the, of the original hearers. Let's do that. How do you think an ancient Israelite would react to this story? I want to remind you, Eglon has been their incredibly brutal oppressor. 
for 18 years. There's a whole generation of Israelites that have not known freedom. They have known nothing but the brutality of Eglon. You know, even the detail about his weight, his fatness, you know, it's, it's there in the story for a reason. It's meant to convey the, the, the fact that this guy has been living in luxury. He's been living in excess, right? He's not just fat. He's a fat cat, right? I mean, he's, he's, been, he's been living off the pain of other people, oppressing them, crushing them while he is living in excess. I want to tell you, when ancient Israelites heard this story, there were no ethical qualms about what Ehud did. Ehud was a hero to them. Okay, In fact, one of the recent prime ministers of Israel was named after, after this man. He's regarded as a, a hero, a hero um, because of the way that he steps out in faith and is... Is, is used by God. So, you know, everything here in the story, this guy's a, it's a liter- he's a literary genius. Everything's here for a reason. Even the grossness of the way that Eglon dies is there to make a point. It's not, he's not just giving gross details to gross you out. He's putting these details there the, about the gruesome way that Eglon dies because he's making a point. And it's the same point that is made uh, by the fact that other people in Scripture die. There are some exceptionally evil people in the Bible, and they tend to die in exceptionally gruesome ways. People like Ahab and Jezebel, and Haman, and Herod, their deaths are all really gruesome. These are exceptionally evil people, and they're, they're experiencing exceptionally gruesome deaths. And there's a point in that. And the point is this. God will not be mocked. God is not mocked. You oppress people. You brutalize people for long enough. And God says... As Johnny Cash puts it, sooner or later I'm going to cut you down. That's what's happening here. Eglon is literally cut down. What happens next? Verses 23 and following. Then Ehud went out on the, into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Here's the mighty Eglon reduced to this heap on the floor. Meanwhile, Ehud, he's out of there. He's escaping and he's rallying the people. Ehud escaped while they delayed and he passed beyond the idols and escaped into to Syria. 
When he arrived, he, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So we learn more here about Ehud, and that is he's not only courageous, he's a leader. He not only carries out this killing of, of evil Eglon, but then he escapes and he blows a trumpet and rallies the people to go to war. And they do go to war, and, 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 Moab, and Moab is, is defeated. So he was not only courageous and a leader, he's a man of faith, great faith. When you read in Hebrews 11, when you read the great chapter about the, the, the heroes of faith in the Old Testament, you'll see that the judges are mentioned. Now, we're going to see in this series, okay, the judges have all kinds of issues. They are very flawed human beings. But they are men and women of faith. And Ehud is, is a person of great faith here, obviously. Um, what made him think that when he blew the trumpet, people were going to rally to him? What made him think that he could take a group of ragtag Israelites who have been enslaved for 18 years and that they could defeat this strong, numerous, able-bodied force from Moab? It's faith. Right? He's, he's a person of, of great faith. Now, what are kind of our takeaways from today? What can, we, what can we take away from this? First of all, God can use one person to make a huge difference. We see that in this, in this story, particularly of, uh, of Ehud, right? So what happens after uh, this? Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Now think about this. Think about where Israel was. They were about as low as they could get. There is absolutely no sign after 18 years that they are about to get free. And one person, one person steps out in faith, takes a stand for the Lord, and that sort of causes, he's, he's the catalyst for like a, a chain reaction of events in which God once again gives peace and rest to his people for for 80 years um it's a it's a great there's a great lesson here god can make a huge difference through just just one person god doesn't have to have big numbers we're going to see this time and time again and judge we're going to see this in the story of gideon right god does not require huge numbers of people sometimes it just requires one one man or woman one boy or girl who will step up to the plate and say, Here, my Lord, send me. Use me. It can make a tremendous difference through the one. Don't underestimate how Almighty God can use you. That's one takeaway. Here's another. God's mercy to save. Did Israel deserve deliverance? Did they deserve 
uh, have God raising up these judges? Did they deserve uh, him raising up Othniel or Ehud? No. No. The pain that they were experiencing was totally self-inflicted. And even when they cry out in pain, there is no indication that it was a true cry of repentance. They're just in pain. (laughs) They're just crying out in pain. It wasn't real repentance. But God in his mercy, because he loves them so much, God in his mercy hears their groaning. He hears their cries. And he grants deliverance. Now, is this not a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because I want to tell you, the gospel is not about God granting mercy to the deserving. It's about God granting mercy to the undeserving, right? We looked at it last week. We'll look at it again in Romans 5. While we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the gospel. It's his mercy. It's his mercy toward the undeserving. It's grace. Third takeaway. The inadequacy of the left-handed Savior. You know, the judges are called deliverers, but another way that you could translate that Hebrew word is Savior. God raises up these series of deliverers, saviors, for his people. But the book of Judges shows that ultimately what we need is a greater deliverer. All of these human deliverers prove to be inadequate. We need a greater deliverer. We need a greater savior. The book of Judges points to the fact that Israel needed a king. And eventually God was going to raise up kings. He was going to raise up people like David. But David's flaws show that what we really need is a greater David, right? We need a greater king. We need the king who was the descendant of David, the king who was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. Christ the Lord. Christ the King. You know, for all the the good things that Ehud, for instance, does... He can't deal with the people's ultimate problem. What happens after Ehud dies? We're going to see in the very first verse of chapter 4, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. You see, he could deliver them from slavery to Eglon. He could not deliver them from slavery to sin. He couldn't give them what they ultimately needed, which was a new heart. Another Savior is needed for that. And he is not a Savior who favors the left hand. 
He's the Savior with the nail-scarred hands. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace, your, your mercy. We thank you that you have given the deliverer that we need. You have given the king that we need. Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know that Savior and King, that you would open their heart and that they would turn to King Jesus and trust in him and follow him. For those of us who do know him, we pray that Christ would reign as King in every area of our lives, that we would withhold no part of our lives, but that Jesus would reign as our deliverer and as our king. Would you work in our lives in that way? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In just a moment, we're going to have a song of invitation. If you're here today and God's working in your life, maybe you have spiritual questions or you want to pray with someone, you want to know more about what it means to follow Christ, maybe you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I want to be a part of this church family as we, as we worship him and, and serve him together. Uh, we would love to invite you to come. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.